Welcome to Brookside, everybody. If you don't know me, I'm Steve. I, um, I'm one of the elders here at Brookside, and uh, I, I'm the one who is in charge of teaching and, and, and how we communicate from the stage. And, uh, but if I haven't met you, I would love to. I'd love to get to, I, you know, I try to go to the back after service. But um, we're just super excited you're here today. We're super excited after Easter as we sort of head into the year. Uh, I know that January 1st is the beginning of a new year, but in the liturgic cal- liturgical calendar, everything builds up toward Easter. It's that, it's that day where we celebrate our risen Lord, and then we begin to set sail into a new year. And with that in mind... I want to invite you into a series where we talk about training. But uh, pursuant to my, there it is, pursuant to my friend uh, Kevin Crawford, if you, if you are here across the years, Kevin loved to start his sermons kind of where he was going to end. He would have like the big idea. And although I didn't put big idea on the slide because it felt derivative, uh, here it is. And this is kind of a controversial thought, but I want you to think about it. Your life cannot be changed just by hearing sermons. Nor can it be changed just by hearing the word. And that might sound a little crazy at first because isn't that what we do? We teach the word and it's supposed to, you know, and and we even uh, pick that uh, one line from the Old Testament where it says God's word doesn't come back void. And surely it does something. And of course it does something. And yet, check out this verse. This is from uh, the book of James. James was uh, Mary's next son after Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And, And as Christianity began to launch out, he ended up leading the church in Jerusalem and he wrote the book of James that's pretty far back in your New Testament. And he writes this in his first chapter. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So people who, who just like, I come and I listen to it and I hear it, but don't end up doing something in my life. I don't end up making some sort of rational decision to change how I actually live. There's actually a self-deception involved there. And he says, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and, and, and not a doer, it's like a, a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and, and, and he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what it was like. Let's talk about that for a moment because I bet at some point You've, you've checked the mirror, you know, and, and, uh, and you looked at, how's it going? Look, okay, and then, and then you, you head out, and then, did I even, was I okay? And then you have to go back and look, because whatever you were looking at, it actually wasn't what you were paying attention to. And it says you look intently at it, and then you forget, you just forget. And, uh, but the one who, uh, who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, which is the way of Jesus, we'll talk about that more as we get in here today, uh, and perseveres. You ever persevered at something? Because I was a distance runner. I, I did the thing where you run and you run. Now I hate it. My knees hurt just thinking about it. And I'm, uh, and I'm out of shape. We'll talk about that more today too. But in order to become a decent distance runner, I'd run miles. Miles and miles. Exhausted just thinking about it. But you know what I liked? I liked winning. I liked, especially I was uh, the half mile was the race I ran the best. And you'd come around on that first lap and everyone's kind of uh, finds their place in the race. And then you, you turn on the first turn, you, you, that back stretch, especially in the half mile of the, of the second lap, is where you separate. Because some people have prepared, some people, and you, and you push, but even then there's people with you. The best thing ever, I promise, the best thing ever was with about 200 meters to go. You lengthened your stride. You pointed your hands. You pushed everything toward the goal. And, and you'd hear the guy behind you cuss. I loved it. Because I knew that they had lost. 
It was already over. There were 200 meters to go and that person had quit. But in order to become that, perseverance was in the, in the way. And so he says who perseveres, being not just a hearer, who, or being a hearer who forgets, but rather a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's talk about blessed real quick. Because sometimes we think of blessing something like, I do a bunch of good things and God looks at it and goes, oh yes, I see that you've conformed to my will. I will bring goodness to you because I like you better. I don't think that's what he means. And we're going to get into that as well. But in order to get started, I have a couple slides. I have a bunch of dumb picture slides today, but this is my first one. Because today I'm going to teach you how to mud drywall. It's uh, honestly, this is from, um, what is it? It's gardenfork.tv. There it is, okay. And uh, three quick pictures. First thing you do after you hang the drywall, you put that tape down. And you can do the kind with the paper tape where you put, but this is the, this is the adhesive tape with the, the mesh. And then you put mud over it, as you can see. And then, go on. Then you take a wider knife and you wipe more mud on. Uh-huh. And then a widest knife. And you've got it. Now listen very carefully. You just found out all the information you need to know. But I'm guessing if Mark Stratman's here, I don't know if I saw him today, but I'm guessing Mark's not quaking in his boots that his contractor job is over now that you know how to do it. But really, I gave you the information. This is a little what sermons can be like. You come every week and we teach you how to do the Christian life and and it's, yeah, number one, take the small knife and then the big knife and then the bigger knife and you've got it. You're there. But the fact is, there's no way you'll ever become proficient. And by the way, has anyone ever tried doing drywall here? How many of you, keep your hands up, or how many of you actually tried it? Keep your hands up. Now go ahead and put your hand down if the first time didn't go terrible. <laughs> okay, right? Because, oh man, I, did, I wanted to work on my house. I did the thing. I read the, I read the information. I went online. And I went and started working on my drywall. <laughs> Boy, you should see the seams in the first room I did. They're terrible. It's difficult. You see, it's not just information, it's practice. And this is how the Christian life works. It's not just information, but there's going to be a practice if you want the well-being out of it. So what we're going to do today was we're going to follow along Paul, and he wrote a letter to uh, one of his favorite, I would say disciples or whatever. It was a guy who, who it seems at Ephesus, Paul had gathered around a group of guys who, because he saw the ability of the Ephesian church to really reach out to the land, and it's in modern day Turkey now. By the way, I got to go to Ephesus. I'm really just bragging now. There's nothing spiritual about that, only my life has been cool, and I hope your life has been as well. Anyway, uh, as we move forward, Paul begins to talk to Timothy about how to do this Christian life. And I want you to catch the sort of the three movements of what he says. So when he starts, I, I started in on him hoping to come to you soon so you get the sense that it's the beginning of a thought. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Which is the church, which is the sacred gathering. Church means sacred gathering. In other words, when we come together as a people We want to see ourselves as the people who've gathered together to be God's people, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And we need to stop. Because even as I said that, I want to be be reasonable with you. Because I know that as we gather together, that might not have been your motive. 
Maybe a friend brought you. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you're checking out God. Maybe you've quit on God for a long time, like, like Mary was just saying, and you're like, I really want to do this. And, and we want to be careful with one another because I want you, wherever you are, to be able to see a picture of God today. And yet, it is important to understand what the goal of the thing's going to be. And so as he talks about it, he begins with the mystery of godliness, and there's this loaded word, godliness. And it's actually quite difficult to translate out of the Greek because the word sometimes means the way uh, that a person might have seen the gods or might have seen a parent. As a matter of fact, one time in the Bible, the translators all get up in arms is he, because he had just been talking about parents. Is the word used in reference to how we ought to see God or is it used in reference of how you ought to see your parents? But what are those holding in common? Think about it for a moment. In a, in a healthy life, because not all of us see our parents that way. But if your parents even came close to doing the job right, there's a sense that they've gone before. A sense that they hold the picture of the life we want to be. And in the ideal sense, and especially in the ancient sense, it was a profound duty of the child to become like their parent. There's a great number of things that I want to be like about my parents. I love my dad's ability to think about life and how he designs it. I love my mom's ability to love people and be a leader. And she's kind of nuts and I got some of that from her and some of that from him. There's ways I want to be like them. And this picture evokes the idea that we look in awe on God and want to be like him. That might sound weird, right? Like acting like God. (laughs) But when we talk about acting like God in the church, we don't mean the bit where he's God and in charge and thunders run. No, it's the bit where he shows us his character through the form of his son, Jesus Christ, which is where this is about to go. So check this out. And by the way, just for you Bible nerds, it's not super important to the, ser- important to the sermon, but I want you to see it because it's super cool. Twice in today's passage, Paul is going to quote the Christian world that was beyond what he was writing. In other words, he's grabbing what we're, this is a hymn that they, uh, and the commentators all agreed that this was a hymn that apparently the church was singing. In other words, he quoted one of their worship songs right here. Which is why it gets a little poetic here, and the, and the translators write it as such. And speaking of Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. You know, he became one of us. Vindicated by the Spirit, that's the resurrection. Seen by angels. In other words, all of heaven agrees with it. Proclaimed amongst the nations. In other words, it's not just that it was with the people of Israel, but it's, and that's a big deal in their world, but it's going to all the people everywhere. Believed on everywhere. Taken up into glory. This picture of all of what it, this is about. See, as you're starting into Christianity and you're wondering, what am I supposed to be doing here? What is, what's the goal? I want to recognize that a lot of us, if we're not careful, have this default model that I sometimes call confess and conform. The confession part, that's the, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ is only begotten Son, our Lord. It's the statement of belief that Jesus is the only way to God. I trust him to be the Savior of my sins, and, and you know, if you want to use the, uh, I ask him to come into my heart, all those various versions of talking about, I believe in Jesus. He is the way to God. That's the confess. And then we say, well, what's the point in being the church then? Well, then we sort of work together on obeying the rules. But that is not the New Testament model at all. The first part's right. It is true that we look on Jesus and say he is all of those things. But our response to that is then not to make a group of rules. As a matter of fact, check out where he goes next because it's super important. He says, now the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now hold on a second because when I get that picture, I grew up in the 80s, I picture like 
Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne and someone biting the head off a bat. You know, ah, like that thing, right? Like, and, and demons, man, like this idea. That they, and, but in the Bible, when we actually see demonic activity, sometimes it's like you get the demoniac who Jesus healed, who's, who's living out amongst the graves. But think about what actually happens when Satan comes and talks to Jesus. He doesn't come wearing a Black Sabbath t-shirt trying to get Jesus to rock. That's not what he's doing. He's simply saying, I don't think your father has you. He said you're his beloved son in whom you're well pleased. Just a few verses back. Only you're here in the desert. You're fasting. You're hungry. You know what, Jesus? Do it yourself. How often the work of the enemy is just simply, I don't think your father loves you. I don't think your father trusts it. Notice the mystery of godliness, the desire to become like our father. But if the, the teaching of demons comes to play, uh, your father doesn't have you. Do it yourself. Make your own bread. Make your own identity. Trust in your own power. Power and control. And, and we begin to live out of his vantage point. So check out where he goes here. Because notice these people who are listening to demons, he doesn't talk about them listening to kiss. Remember when we were talking, it's kids in Satan's service. I don't know what he said. Right, but uh, some of the old people are really enjoying these 80s references. You young people, I, I've got nothing for you. I'm sorry, I'm old. All right, here we go. The next slide, it says, here's what they do. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods and that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in the truth. In other words, in his day, the people who he's concerned about are the people who said, now that you've started and on this Jesus thing, let me make every rule... Confess and conform, right? Let me make every rule so that you can earn your way to God. And Paul is, he calls it demonic. There's this incredible desire that, that the enemy gives us to want to like make our own way because we don't trust that our Father loves us. But godliness is not acting in moral, acting, sorry, acting in a moral way. Sounded like acting immoral, that would have not made any sense at all. Rather, it is becoming like our father. It is seeing him with awe and wanting to be like him, and that's where he turns. But notice in order to do it, we had to fix our eyes on the one who is the revealed God, Jesus himself. That was, that was why he started with the hymn. We look at Jesus, and then we seek to become like him. And now watch where Paul goes, because this is super important. This is really the theme here. He says, if you put these things, uh, next slide, before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith. Notice that word trained. The good doctrine which you followed have nothing to do with those irreverent silly myths where you make a bunch of rules and if you're on the good side of the rules and God likes you, if you're on the bad side of the rules, well, then you're kind of dirty and we don't. That's not what we do at all. Instead, check this out. What actually happens? Because I'm concerned both ways. Because sometimes, if, especially those of us who came from uh, church structures where the rules were piled on top of the rules, on top of the rules, we might think that the way of Jesus is forget all the rules and do whatever I feel like doing. I'm hoping you come out of today thinking of that as just as much of a disaster, if not more. Uh, I was talking to a man before church today, and, and, and he's like, yeah, my family had a drug problem. We got drugged to church five times a week. It's a good joke. I liked it. It was funny, right? And uh, see, that's the, 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 the one model. But then the other one's like, oh, you don't have to do any of those things. Just do whatever you feel like. I'm sure it'll work out great. Just follow your heart. Paul says, rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Begin training, we need to talk about today, is for while, for while bodily training is of some value, 
Godliness is a value in every way that holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says that if you enter into this kind of training, you're going to get the goodness that comes from acting like your father, not just in this life, but the life to come. We need to stop for a moment. Let's talk about training. So before we talk about spiritual training, I think it'll be really helpful today and a little bit of fun because I found some good memes. So uh, a little bit of fun to talk about just simple training. Because here's the deal. I used to be able to run a, a sub five minute mile. I used to be able to run a two minute half mile. So recently, uh, we were playing with uh, Logan and Nakai, our former foster children. We're still friends with their family and we're going to visit them. We're in, and there was a track there and the kids were playing with Sandy and Jack and I decided to see how fast I could put down a quarter mile. Once upon a time, that was 51 seconds. It was a minute and 50 seconds. <laughs> and I was almost dead. I really miss being in shape. I do. I would love to have my lungs back underneath me again. That would be awesome. But see, I have this problem, see here, because here's me in the morning. Let's eat healthy today. Here's me at night. Right? <coughs> Let's talk about this. Who here lacks the knowledge on how to get in shape? Really, it's diet and exercise. It's just as, I mean, really, it's diet and exercise. I don't think any of us think the problem is knowledge. So the problem is different. And if we have a confessing, conformed Christianity where we just think I hear sermons and get knowledge and, and our lives never change, it's because there's going to be working out. We need to have a workout model. Because Paul talks about training. <laughs> when I want to lose weight and someone says, yeah, it's a bit extreme. <laughs> it's a little too much. But I think this is what we do with our Christianity. When somebody says, hey, would you like to have all the best that Jesus has to offer? And then we talk about what it's going to be like. When someone says, oh, that's negative feelings. I mean, honestly, I would like to be in shape again, but the negative feeling of I go out and start jogging around one stupid quarter mile around the track and I'm drowning in my lungs by the time I'm halfway around, that's a negative feeling and I don't like it. And I tell myself, it's not worth it. It's too much. And we do that with our Christianity. We want the best of what the kingdom has to offer, but when we start in on it and the negative feelings come and we're still believing the worldview that our feelings can guide us to well-being, it kills us. So this next one here, this is called forced perspective. Here is why you don't change. And we'll stay with the workout model. Because, keep in mind, I, I really do value in shapeness. But there's a problem. In shapeness is somewhat far off. Just like this, you've seen these dumb things, forced perspective. No, stay back, stay back. Uh, where, where the person puts it, oh look, it's all right, I'm holding the Eiffel Tower. All right. And, and of course we get it. We get it. But isn't that what happens when I say, here's in shape, here's a donut. That's my weakness. I think we've made this clear here, right? <laughs> by the way, I managed to walk by those donuts out in the lobby. I did it today because I knew I was going to be preaching about it and I felt like a hypocrite. But on a normal Sunday, I might not have been at right? So there's a donut and it feels so, the well-being that is the donut, because it tastes so good, is right here. And the well-being that is in shapeness is so far off. Who wants it? Check this out. This is from Lord of the Rings, if you didn't see it. One of the problems, if you want to make this movie, is hobbits are short and people are tall. And uh, I love this movie so much, I bought the, the box set where you get to uh, listen to the director talk about the making of the movie, and I really enjoyed those things. It was really fun. And Peter Jackson talked about this scene specifically. Because this was the first time in the movie where you had a tall person and a short person next to each other. 
And they knew that if they could sell this one to you, that your suspended disbelief would kick in and you would just roll with it. But if this one didn't work, if you looked at it and said, looks fake, you'd have felt fake the whole movie. So they put a ton of work into this. Because Elijah Wood is not that short compared to uh, Sir Ian McKellen. So the next slide shows you how they did it. There it is. It is. It's the next slide. Um, but uh, can we, I lost you there. Can we get the next one? Is it? My slides did not switch here and so I'm going to kind of, there it is. Awesome. I don't know. I hope this can, keeps working. Here you see what they did. Elijah Wood's a solid four feet behind him. And they, they put a lot of work into like how they could move because if the camera moved, you had to move it. And they, they knew that this is how it worked. And this is how the enemy works with us. He doesn't do the well-being of the kingdom is the, is the, and here's your hand holding it. He doesn't do that. He's so crafty at causing us to believe that he has well-being here, a fruit for Adam and Eve rather than the glory that God had to offer them or, or what he has to offer you. You see that? That he sets us in this place where we have a hard time measuring. And that's why in the workout model and in the Christian model we don't train because the goodness of what is in front of us, even though it's not true goodness, ends up looking so much bigger and better than the thing that is further off. It is why every sin comes into your life that you do because the goodness of God feels afar off and the goodness of whatever sin you're partaking in is so close. This is how the Christian life works. So let's talk about what Paul says. He says, train yourself for godliness, for well, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life. In other words, God's way makes your life work now and in heaven. As a matter of fact, if you want to go to heaven, if heaven's your hope, whatever makes heaven heavenly is going to be the exact thing that makes life heavenly here. But the one difference, of course, is there, the world's not broken around you. Here the world is. And so if I tried to act just like a person in heaven acts with the sort of loving people and being kind and, and doing all the things that you think are heavenly, if I do it here, someone's going to take advantage of me. Someone's going to walk over me. Someone's going to hurt me. So, and I begin to go, whoa, God's way doesn't work in a world of sin. I better try the enemy's way. But Paul says godliness, if it's trained in, is actually the good life here as well. Okay, I, I want to finish the verse real quick. So, for to this end we toil and strive. This is why I wanted to keep it, because of toiling and striving. This makes us Protestants a little itchy. Because for so long and so many places in the church across the centuries, we worked and strived to attempt to earn God's favor or to attempt to be pleasing to him with the belief that we were a good person goes to heaven, right? That kind of a mentality. That works could earn something from God. And so when we rejected that and said, no, you can't earn God's love. That's not, you can't earn love, period. That's not how love works. And we begin to live in the grace that was offered to us in the New Testament. And that's why the Protestants picked up the New Testament and said, look what the apostles are talking about. This is how it should look. We set forward into this world of grace. But the problem is not that you can earn something from God, but rather, you don't earn anything from God, but rather, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Notice the difference. Grace is not opposed to effort. As a matter of fact, grace loves you working out to become like God. It's any form of earning. You cannot earn God's pleasure. You cannot earn his love. That's not how it works. But you can participate in his way and become like him and so find the good life. So let's talk about this. I have four things today that I want to challenge you to set down 
and four things I want you to challenge you to pick up. See, if we're going to think about working out, having a workout model, in other words, if I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to have to sit down, sitting lazily on my couch and eating potato chips, and I'm going to have to pick up, I can't do it, I just can't eat celery, but I'm going to try, I, I like spinach salad, I can do a couple veggies. The legend that I hate all vegetables has been highly exaggerated. I just hate most of them. But uh, the fact is, I know how to eat right. I'm going to have to do it in the same way if I'm going to want to get the godliness, the goodness that comes from acting like my father and becoming like him in his character and his way of loving others. First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to have to set down love of money. In virtually every place where the good life is mentioned, the disciples, the apostles who wrote the New Testament bring up the allure of greed. And this is actually from just a few pages further into Paul's letter to Timothy. He says this. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into great temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Some translations just say the root of all evil. Money is that ability to get what I want. And if I come to love it, I come to love the ability to get whatever I want. That's it. It's just paper, right? But it represents the ability to procure my desires. And if I'm in love with procuring my desires, then I am already screwed in terms of being able to be able to concern myself with the Lord's desires, your desires, anything. It's a terrible thing. And it's destroyed many, many Christians across the centuries. And it continues to do so today. It's through craving that some have wandered away from the faith and already pierced themselves with many pangs. It's always been one of our greatest enemies. And if that's the case, we're not going to have to just set down love of money. We're going to have to not pick up not love of money, but pick up generosity. Note the difference. You know, it's when we tell a person to stop cigarette smoking, we don't just say, don't smoke. We say, start chewing gum or eating carrots or something, right? Gross. Okay, anyway. No, I'm kidding. I like carrots. They're fine. But, uh, Note this. Pick up generosity. If you do not have a generous spirit toward others, then you're missing the goodness of the kingdom. It's really fun. When you get to give away your money to bless others or give away your time to bless others or to give away your, your home in terms of loving others or having people to dinner, this ability to believe that I'll protect my life, I lose it. Generosity is the path to the good life. I got another one. Set down your love of pleasure. In the workout model, I don't mean the love of feeling good because I've, I've gotten in shape, but rather the feeling that I love sitting on a couch eating potato chips, that thing. Following your feelings is the road to disaster in almost everything. Now, we, we do need to talk about how to, uh, how to work with our feelings because they're important. But the, the great phrase about feelings is they make great scouts, but terrible, terrible masters. They can tell us a lot about what's going on, but as soon as we serve them, they ruin us. And here's, this is Paul talking about the works of the flesh. The flesh is that notion that my physical being and its cravings can lead me to the good life. And so if I try to follow that way of life, he says the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Whoa, strife? Yeah. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. All those little church politics, all those little things that we squeeze underneath, they're happening not because we love one another and want to build the church, but because we're serving our flesh and they destroy us. And I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. See, it's the work of every kingdom to try to bring well-being to its citizens. Think about, think about like uh, 
communism, its path to try to give well-being to its citizens, it's uniformly not worked, or socialism, or, or, or you know, any of the isms, capitalism, it doesn't matter. All of these are ways of saying, if we just live this way, we're going to get there. And the kingdom of heaven has its way too. And he says, those who live according to their feelings will not make the way of the kingdom of heaven happen. That's how it works. Set down your love of pleasure and train yourself to love well-being. You know, so if I serve my flesh, I'll be sitting on a couch all the time. If I love well-being, I'm going to exercise even if it feels like drowning in my lungs because I love the well-being that comes out after. You see the difference? How about this one? Set down your love of prestige. Your love of looking good. Your love of being exalted. Your love of having others look and say, ooh, look at that one. It kills us. Here's Jesus talking about it. He's talking about how that's exactly what the Pharisees love. And he says, but you, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers and sisters. The word Adelphoi there can mean uh, brothers and ancestors. You, that's what we are. When Peter talks about Paul, he doesn't say, the great and lofty, loved apostle Paul has told you. He just says, our brother Paul. When we love titles, when we love being called... Um, you know, instructors, and what else Jesus put here? Father. And, and what ends up happening is when we try to exalt ourselves over others, we destroy one another. That is not the Christian way. But he says instead, whoever um, exalts himself will be humble, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, I'm sorry, one line back reading. The greatest amongst you will be your servant. Prestige that promises so much life, but it delivers such a disaster. But loving one another, being the servant, finding ways to make others. So if you're going to do this, train yourself to build up others. Train yourself to make much of others. Train yourself on how you can find that part of you that wants to be great. Tell it to be quiet. It's not helping you. Love one another. And above all, set down every form of unforgiveness. Dear ones, I can't say this enough. Jesus' first rule where he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother, who has contempt, you know, there's a saying, rocket to one another, that contempt. And whoever doesn't fix relationships, that's the one who's a murderer. And he goes on when he says the, the Lord's Prayer, he says, um, my bad, uh, no, you can go there, you can go there. When he says the Lord's Prayer, he finishes, because, you know, forgive us our trespasses, the way we forgive others. He says, if you don't forgive others, then your father won't forgive you. And then this one's from Matthew 18, where he's just finished telling that parable of the man who'd been forgiven some astronomical amount of money, but then went and turned and beat some man for just a few thousand bucks. And, and when the master finds out, he summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And listen to what Jesus says. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When we give those forgiveness sermons, sometimes we, we have to be careful because some of you have dealt with abuses and the kinds of things where forgiveness is so terribly difficult that sometimes we spend the whole sermon trying to deal with the exception cases or the deep and, and most difficult cases. But I promise you, most of what Jesus is talking about is what happens right here in these people. You're going to hurt each other. We're not perfect. We fail one another. And if when somebody fails you, it causes, or somebody has a different worldview than you, or when somebody comes at it from a different angle, if you allow yourself to go, ew, like you stepped out of the light to do that. You feel that was so good. 
If we allow ourselves to do that, then we destroy one another. We make a mockery of the cross and of the king and everything that's supposed to be us. If we are going to be his people, we must train ourselves to be repairing broken relationships. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. I know it's daunting and, and every part of our flesh goes, ew, it doesn't feel good. I was really proud of Lizzie, our, 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 our children's director this week. Because I, I had done something and I had reasons for it. And, and yet, from her perspective, it, it hurt. And she's like, hey, ouch. And she had every right in her heart to say, you know what? Ugh, forget that. I'm just going to bury it. Instead, she sat down and she said, hey, that thing hurt. And we talked. And I came out of that conversation. See, I'm bragging on her right now. So utterly impressed. She's young. She's only in her 20s. But she said, I'm going to do it Jesus' way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up. And, and she fixed our relationship. And, and, and I skipped the beat in there. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and I was able to explain other things to her. Do you see, when we fix relationships, it is the glory of the king. But when you don't, if you allow unforgiveness to roll in your heart because you don't think that he's talking to you, you make a mockery of what the kingdom is. We must be training ourselves. Today's communion. We started this thing not by just saying you have to act like a Christian, but saying we cannot do it if we don't fix our eyes on our master. If we just are making new rules, then we're the demonic one that was in the middle. We must fix our eyes on the one who gave his life for us so that we can become ones who train to become like him. It is impossible to do it without his power. And so today, band, if you guys would come, today as we take communion, I want to challenge you each time that we want to look at a different facet of communion. Today, I want to challenge you as, you as you lift the bread to say two things. Say, Jesus, you are what really gives me life. And all my attempts to get life otherwise are killing me. And not only that, please teach me how to be one who gives my life like you. Not to the fullness of the cross. You're not going to die for anyone's sin. But to the fullness of saying, it is the cross that changes the world. That's my challenge. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, do I go? Do I not go? Will it be weird? We want to ask that you not. This is, this is a, a, an ancient rite that belongs to the believers in Jesus, those who are saved by grace. And honestly, every time we see someone not taking communion, that causes us to admire you. We want you to know you'll be admired and respected, not like, oh, what's with that person? So, man, please lead us in worship. Please come to take communion with that challenge. Jesus, I need you if I'm ever going to become like you. Thanks. Hello. Um, I just want to thank the band. Uh, what a wonderful job they do every Sunday. It, it always just touches my heart. These people to volunteer in all these different ways and have these gifts, how they give them freely for our enjoyment and to worship their God. So thank you guys. Um, Steve wanted me to come up and kind of highlight uh, our uh, financial situation at the church. We kind of want to do that a little bit more frequently, um, just to kind of keep everybody abreast of where we're at. And so I help with the finances here, and I'm also an elder. So uh, Aaron Kessler does a great job managing that for us, but we uh, stay on top of things and make sure that we're going in the right direction. So what I wanted to say, after the first quarter... Um, right now, currently, uh, just comparing apples to apples uh, last year um, to this year, we're, we're making good strides and we're, we're well ahead of where we were last year. But as far as our budget goes and where we need to be, um, we're still uh, lagging a little bit behind. 
So when Steve was talking today, I was uh, thinking about uh, my journey and growing up and my um, he was talking about you know following your parents example and my mom and dad always told us to tithe you know some of the you know, lawn mowing money or money we'd get at uh, home and it always felt like like oh man that's like one less pack of baseball cards like all right I'll do it and you know they're watching me as the pans coming along and that's when we used to pass the plate right and so I'd take it out and put it in like all right I guess I can do that and then as I got into high school, you know, it was still like on my heart, like, yeah, I should, I should give some back to God, but it's like, that's one less date I can go on or one less fun thing I can do after the football game or whatever, and, and, but, but you'd do it. And it wasn't until college where, you know, I went to a church down in Finlay, and they have the financial updates in the bulletin, and I always read them, and we'd be a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, and and uh, then we were a little bit behind and a little bit behind again in the next uh, bulletin and suddenly something clicked in me. It's like, you know, you're coming here, you're um, a part of this thing, uh, you're a part of this thing. Like, I need to, um, and this was when I was in college, I need to contribute because I really enjoy these messages, I enjoy uh, being part of the Bible study I was in, all the community that this brings to my life and nourished me. Like. The Lord's calling me to be a part of this too. And so then at that point I uh, made a commitment to, okay, I, I need to make this a discipline in my life. And, and then when me and my wife got married, um, you know, we, we had to set aside like, you know, we came up with a number, uh, percentage, because it's easy to back into when you get paid, you know, like what should we give? Like, well, what's the percentage? So what everybody does is, is their own uh, um, leading, but that was the way we kept discipline to just, this is God's, this isn't ours. We don't, there's no question every month, every week as we got paid. So I guess from Steve's message, um, I wanted to just kind of encourage each one of you to just look at your own life, look at your own, uh, all the gifts that God's given you. And uh, there's, there's joy in the discipline of giving uh, giving back to God what he already gave you and uh, it's blessed me and my wife over our lives and uh, there was a lot of times where it was, it was tough and you know it was like oh man that would be uh, uh, nice to not do that would give us the ability to pay this bill but we we continued to uh, be unified in doing that now as we have kids, we're teaching them the same path and um, showing them that everything we have is God. So um, he's, he's blessed us abundantly and so uh, he calls us to give back to him and, and we want to do that with a joy, joyful heart. So, um, but thank you for all your contributions and what you do and I guess uh, on the heels of Steve's message, just con encourage you, uh, each one, to look at your own life and all that he's given you and consider uh, establishing a discipline in your life, if you haven't already, to continue to give back to him. So I'm going to close this in prayer here then. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for all you've given us, for uh, the gifts and the blessings and the talents you've given us uh, to be able to go out and work jobs and um, the health that you've given us to go to those jobs. And we know it's all from you, Lord. 
Um, and we just ask you uh, to continue to bless Brookside and to continue to provide for us. You've always did that and been faithful, and we just thank you. And we just ask you um, to continue to give us urgings to stretch ourselves and show uh, our love for each other uh, and to be generous about giving our gifts away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and have a great week. I will not waste this day you've 